You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Jesus, at the end of chapter 19, has been laid in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, and he has been buried, and as was the custom of burial, prepared to even in his own body, begin to deteriorate and decompose. And yet chapter 20 tells us that that tomb that was loaned to him was, came with an amazing rebate. And, the, and the, the spices, the preparation for burial and the decomposition of Jesus' body also came apparently with a return on it. Such that that was that which was invested in preparing for Jesus' body to lay rotting in the ground, ended up being one of the most short-lived investments ever. Because on the first day of the week, John chapter 20, we see Jesus is risen from the dead. Now I want, as I hope every Easter, to make sure you see this is not just some kind of climax of the story, although it certainly is that. It's better to say that John 20 is the bedrock, the foundation of the story. Apart from what we see in John chapter 20, death gets the last word. And the most hopeless of all circumstances for you and I is to bury a loved one or to think upon our own death, our own frailty. But we find out later, Paul tells the Thessalonian church, look, weep, mourn in death, But don't mourn as those who have no hope because we serve a risen Savior. Death does not get the last word. Cancer, heart disease, you name it. It does not get the last word. And so this is not just a season we celebrate every single year that coincides with the proliferation of bunnies, let's say, or the laying of eggs even. But instead, this is a daily and weekly And I would say even an eternal celebration. Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is raised from the dead, what else could God do? And so two weeks ago, we walked through the first 18 verses of this chapter showing how Jesus encountered Mary and revealed himself to her. And and we find something pretty amazing. He he points out something that she clearly had believed in. And the resurrection of Jesus does that. That. But ultimately, faith in the risen Christ involves a personal encounter with Him. Now, up to this point, John has been introducing us to Jesus as he has entered in for the last ten chapters into Jerusalem. He's introduced us to Jesus as the entrance of a coming king. He comes to the entrance in the fanfare of a king. People pull off uh, you know, palm branches and they begin to throw their own cloaks down in the entrance of Jesus and they, they sing and say, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The other gospel writers say that there's a, a fever pitch. There's hundreds of thousands of people gathered for the Passover and when Jesus comes in, they think this is it. This is the new David who's going to come in, overthrow the Romans, and establish a kingdom back like the good old days. He's going to make Jerusalem great again. I don't know why I said that. Seemed funny. That's, that's their cry. And, it, and, it, and it, with a fever pitch, it excites everyone. They're thinking, yes, we're going to go back to the good old days. And Mary Magdalene, we even see, anoints him like a king. But Jesus has something far greater. 
And now I know exactly why I said it. Because our hope isn't in the good old days. You see, nostalgia is warm, fuzzy feelings about the past, but faith is the warm, fuzzy feeling about the future. And there's a hope now in Christ, a kingdom that's coming that won't pass away, a kingdom that will be established that's marked by peace. And the resurrection is the inauguration, the annunciation of this coming kingdom. This old broken world, this broken kingdom, this present evil age is at an end. And the annunciation that this present evil age is overcome at the resurrection. And a new era is coming. A new creation is coming. A new kingdom is coming. And it's not marked by death, crying, or sadness. But this new kingdom is marked by, by resurrection, comfort, and joy. And all of that comes through a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Face-to-face encounter with Jesus personal encounter that is an encounter with a a live and personal jesus not not just simply rummaging through old texts to learn about an old dead sage but instead a face-to-face encounter with a conquering king and that conquering king comes like and and john tells us this this conquering king comes like as what these people would have expected in this day and age with gifts we saw in psalm chapter 68 and even ephesians chapter 4 makes reference to Psalm chapter 68 that Jesus is going to lead his captives to freedom and he's going to come bearing gifts. And what are the gifts that this conquering king comes with in the wake of his victory? Because if you take over a kingdom and you defeat the enemy, you come back with the spoils, the booty, the land, the money, position, power. But if you conquer death, if you defeat and destroy death, then what are the spoils of that victory that he brings in John chapter 20? Did you catch them? Faith. Peace. Power. Freedom from fear and even confidence and purpose. And it's as if Jesus comes in John chapter 20 to Mary, to Simon, to John, to the rest of the disciples, and even Thomas, bearing gifts and simply says, receive. Receive. Receive these gifts that I've purchased for you. Faith in the risen Christ involves a personal encounter with Him. And I want to invite you to consider that that's true. For instance, if you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. And and I want you to to eavesdrop in on what it is that Christians believe to be true. But but I don't want you just to think that by intellectual assent, you can kind of agree that Christians might be right. The worst thing that could happen is that I tell you about Jesus and you And then you just kind of walk away thinking that you've got to somehow go look for him and and he won't show himself. John chapter 20 says that, in fact, it's Jesus who's looking for us. And we're not simply meant to memorize the sayings of some old dead teacher, but instead we we see the teacher face to face like Mary and we say, beloved one. So let's begin to walk through this text. I want you to see the gifts that in the victorious resurrection of Jesus he begins to pass out. Beginning of verse 19, the first thing you see, Jesus, the resurrected Savior, comes to bring peace. Now, three times in this chapter, he says the exact same words over and over again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so we're still on Sunday, verse 19, the doors being locked where the disciples were, remember that, we're going to see that later in the chapter as well, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, I shared with you two weeks ago, I'll never get over this. 
If you notice, when he first sent Mary off, what did he say? What did he, uh, what did he say to Mary? Hey, go tell my brothers. Where, this is where I would have stepped in and said, Mary, go tell my, those betrayers. Go, go tell those weaklings, those cowards who buckled under the pressure. Go tell those traitors that I'm back from the dead. Right? That, that's what I would say. And thankfully, I'm not the Savior. But what does he say to Mary? Go tell my brothers. And it's as if he, he knows that they're probably not going to believe him. So what does he say after that in verse 17? Make sure you tell my brothers, I'm going back to my father, who is also your father. To my God, who is also your God. This resurrection that I have accomplished isn't to return to exact revenge. This resurrection is to return to invite and to adopt into God's family. And so Jesus, as only Jesus can do, doesn't come back like a zombie movie to kill. He comes back to offer peace. And so instead of showing up amongst the disciples and saying, what were you thinking? Or what, what did you not believe me? Did you, not, did you not trust me when I said I would lay my life down and I would take it up when I was ready? He didn't say any of that stuff. What does he say? Peace. Very common Greeting, shalom, peace. Now, now there's, there's, there's a, a trick going on here. He's speaking in the present tense. He's not saying necessarily, one day peace will be yours. But literally, he's saying peace is with you. Now that I'm here, resurrected from the dead, peace is here with me. Now, I want to encourage some of you because notice that that peace is not the absence of strife entirely. Did you catch why they were in the room where they were locked up? Did you you catch what John told us? They were locked where they were. Why? The beginning or the middle of verse 19, for fear of the Jews. Now, don't miss this. The peace that Jesus offers is not peace in, in the absence of strife or struggle or burden or suffering. It is peace in spite of those things. It is peace in the midst of those things. Now I say that because I know many of you are here and you're wondering, how on earth could Jesus give me peace? You don't know what I've been through this week. And you're right, I don't. But I have an encouragement to you. The peace that Jesus gives is not simply to remove earthly suffering or to remove earthly burdens. The peace that Jesus gives is over and against those things. Look, the resurrection of Jesus, don't miss this, defeats death. But Jesus doesn't defeat death by outrunning death. Jesus doesn't defeat death by by sidestepping death. He doesn't juke death. He doesn't outsmart death. Look what Jesus did. Revelation 5 tells us that that when John hears that that the the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, he turns around, and what does he see? He sees a slain lamb. But what is that slain lamb doing? Is he curled up and like the last, I don't know, slain animal you've seen on the side of the road starting to swell up? No, that slain lamb is what? Standing. Jesus has not avoided death. He didn't outsmart death. And here, here's good news for you. Neither will you. But the victory that you and I receive in Jesus isn't that we outsmart or outwit or outrun suffering. It's just like Jesus. We bear the full marks of it and are resurrected victorious over it. 
This is why in the, you know, in the next month we'll celebrate baptism. And here's what we, we won't celebrate a drowning. We won't. We don't. We, it's, and and no, one, no one's ever really afraid of drowning. Why? Because as surely as we're going to pull you out of the water to bear witness to Jesus, so also Jesus will call us out of the grave. He brings peace, but it's not peace to the avoidance of suffering. So back to what you might say. How is Jesus going to bring me peace? I've had the worst week, moment, day of my entire life. I have good news for you. Those sufferings, those difficulties, those burdens that you carry that have brought you into this place don't get the last word over you. They may explain a lot about you, but they don't define you. And the peace Jesus brings, don't miss this, is to a bunch of people who had completely failed. And even in this moment, they were still gripped with fear. And Jesus comes and says, in spite of all that, I have peace. It's present with you. And this is good for us because when we encounter the risen Christ, when we abide in Him and remain in Him, there is strangely and mysteriously a peace that defies understanding. Now don't miss this. Jesus promised He would do this. He comes and He turns grief into joy, just like He committed. Don't, don't forget, we're, we're connecting all the dots in John chapter 20 from the journey we had walking through the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 14. Remember verse 18? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you, you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's not that they hadn't been orphaned, right? In verse 14. It's that in spite of their orphanage, Jesus comes to adopt them back into the family of the Father. John 16, as they were speaking again, he says, I'm going to go away for a little while. And they were like, well, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking? Why you're asking yourself what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me in a little while, then you will see me. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. But the world will rejoice. Just hang on. Do you know what that feels like? Notice he doesn't say you're going to live a life free, free of crying, free of sorrow. You will lament, you will have sorrow, and the world will laugh. The world will think it did a good thing. You will certainly lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but what? Your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, you have speaking to you in this room, especially who would identify with this, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and then your hearts will rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy from you. Jesus comes. He turns grief and sorrow into joy, just like he promised. And the resurrected Savior comes and he brings peace. Not in the absence of suffering, but in spite of it. Maybe even in face of it. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It, it was as if like they maybe didn't recognize him, but there was something that he did there that apparently sequentially, that's where the then comes from, when they saw his hands in his side, they knew certainly he was the crucified one. That's because an encounter with the risen Lord is to see that he is none other than the crucified sacrifice. Again, he didn't outsmart or outwit or outrun death. He bore the marks of death and yet said, ha, 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 nana, nana, boo, boo, right? Just like, fine, is that, is that, you're going to kill me? That, oh, you're going to kill me. That's the best you can do? And when they saw him, when they saw him, they were like, that's the one. <laughs> I, I saw him die. I remember I watched them inflict those wounds including the mark that John tells us in the previous chapter, the, the spear that goes into his side that evidently showed how dead he was, and yet he was standing there in front of them as he's the crucified sacrifice. He was the one who bled on their behalf. He was the one who died in their place. And the peace that he brought to them, the peace that he delivered to them, was peace in the midst of deep and awful sorrow and suffering. As if to say, this is what you probably deserve. This is what you probably should get. You should have taken the brunt of this painful suffering, but I did it in your place. The risen Lord is none other than a crucified sacrifice. He took our place. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he was buried, and he was crucified and buried for us, on behalf of us. Verse 21, we... See, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Comes over and over again. And then there's something following this declaration of peace. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so now I am sending you. Now we saw this in Matthew chapter 28 uh, and, and the Gospel of Luke, the last few Easter's that we've celebrated together. And we even saw it last week. I read it just a minute ago. The first thing that Jesus did for Mary when he introduced himself to her was what? Did you catch it? You've seen me, great. Go and tell. Go and tell. And I would challenge you, anything, anything at all that's supposedly good but is apparently not that good for, to tell anyone is not good news at all. And good news is the kind of things you can't keep a secret. And so the first thing he does, like, I'm coming with peace. But, but don't miss it. I'm not giving you peace just for your own benefit. I'm not giving you peace that will just be a blessing to you, but, but he, he seems to be the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham to, to bring blessing to the nations all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. That the blessing that God is going to give his people is not going to be for their own sake, but what? They will not only be blessed, but they will be a blessing to the nations. And so every single time that the peace of Christ is experienced, that person is propelled to proclamation and mission. The peace of Christ propels us to proclamation and mission. That peace is beyond understanding, and so therefore it's something we can't keep a secret. Now, I know for some people this is something that makes them really uncomfortable, and maybe in, if you're in this room, that's, that's the thing that bothers you the most, right, about Christianity. Like, if, if Christians would just, like, just mind their own business, if they would stop trying to, like, convince me to be a Christian, and, and even now, you're like, why is he so emphatically trying to get me to believe in Jesus? And all I'll say is, because he told me to. He told me to. He said, look, I'm going to give you a peace that you won't be able to keep a secret. Now, you know this, right? 
You know this. If someone were to say, like, I have a stomach ache, right? There's a sense in which they could keep that a secret for a while. I have a headache. You can keep that a secret for a while. But at a certain point, whatever's going on on the inside becomes visible on the outside. And he's saying, look, I'm going to give you a piece that will look crazy to the outside world. It will be contagious. And so in the same way that the Father has moved towards me, sent me to you, so also I am sending you as bearers of this message. The peace I give you isn't something that you sit on. And I want to encourage you. If you're in this room and you would call yourself a Christian, there's too much sorrow and suffering in the world for you to keep your peace in Christ a secret. And I would push you I would push you. Don't say you have a really bad headache if there aren't physical symptoms. And stop calling yourself a, a God-loving Christian if you just look like the rest of the world. There's too much sorrow. And here's what I want to encourage you. Your lack of mission, the lack of purpose, look what Jesus says. It's, it's a direct correlation to what? Your experience of His peace. And don't miss it. He, he, he says it three times <laughs> because we are prone to forget. No, seriously, peace. Be at peace. But they're going to reject me. I know. Don't worry about it. What are they going to do? Kill you? Ha <laughs> ha. Right? Like, peace. And so the peace of Christ compels us. Not even only that, it propels us into proclamation and mission. And so I would say to you, friend, take a deep, deep drink of the peace of Jesus and then just let it flow through you. And then be a faithful, peaceful presence wherever you go. And here's what I think you'll find. When you're the only person in the room not shouting at the top of your lungs, when you're the only person in the room not freaking out, people are going to wonder why. And what will you get to tell them? You get to say, these things don't get the last word. I'm not a slave to these things. I have peace in the midst of these things. And the same way I didn't drown in baptism, neither will this consume me. I will be resurrected again over this. And when he said... This says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he did something amazing. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this is going to make you really uncomfortable and I just want to charge right into it. I want it to make you feel uncomfortable. Jesus meant for this to be the case. Verse 23, basically, if Jesus is passing on the spoils of his victory, then you have to ask yourself, what is it that he defeated? What is it that he destroyed? Right? Like I told you, if, he, if he's a conquering king and he destroyed like, the empire, he'd come back giving away positions in the cabinet. Right? You, can be a, you can be a vice president, you can be a governor, you can be in my cabinet. Right? Or here's some money, here's, a, you know, here's land. Right? But, but that isn't what he did primarily. Instead, he defeated sin and death such that he passes on the spoils of his victory. And what are the spoils of his victory? Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. Again, hear John telling us that like the conquering king has come, right? The inauguration of the new king is here, and he's giving out cabinet positions. And you're like, well, you know, what, what position? You know, what minister of the interior, minister of defense? Like, what, what positions will this conquering king Jesus give to us? And what does he say? Emissaries of forgiveness. Ambassadors of reconciliation. You will come, and you will have the ability, nay, even the authority to say that in Christ there's forgiveness. But apart from Christ, there's not. 
Now, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus apparently has said this before, and when he said it, he was talking about the establishment of the church, and he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Keys, authoritative kings, whatever keys, whatever you set loose on earth, it will be set loose eternally, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound eternally. And this is profound, isn't it? This is profound. We have a genuine although derived authority to declare the peace and forgiveness of Christ. And when we do, it has eternal implications. Now, I say derived, right? Now, I, I talk about even when we were walking through First and Second Thessalonians, the, a leader, even a pastor like me in a church, I have authority, but it's a derived authority. It's a, it's a stewardship of authority. It's a borrowed authority. Such that I can say to you right now, thou shalt not kill, Right? And you know you have to obey me. But you kind of aren't really obeying me. In fact, I, wanted, I used the King James so you would know that that didn't come from him. He doesn't talk that way. Right? But, but if, I say, if I say to you, thou shalt not murder, you know you have to obey me. But you know if you disobey me, you don't answer to me. You answer to the one who has actual authority. And so don't miss this. The, the, the Christian and the, and the church in Matthew 16 and 18 doesn't have an inherent authority to forgive or to be unforgiving. Thank God, because I know many of you have experienced deep unforgiveness in the church or from the church, and you, you, you like the rest of the people in the room, could, could give a list of encounters that, that were ungracious that you had with the church. And I would just say, I don't know why you were surprised. They're just as sinful as you. And so here's, here's, here's the good news. If you're looking for a perfect church, well, you're going to need to leave because as soon as your sinful self got here, you mess it up. <laughs> for the rest of us, who know that our only hope is Christ alone, we actually revel in, revel in the company of hypocritical, sinful people because we know Christ alone could do something like this. It's a derived authority. I know some people have wielded this poorly, but I want to encourage you that they just wielded a derived authority poorly. But don't let their ungracious handling of a derived authority, namely the declaration of forgiveness in Christ, don't let their poor handling distract you from the provocative nature of what's happening here. We are swimming in a culture of a very false sense of inclusion, inclusion and equality. And thank God, in some places in our culture, that false equality is actually coming to the surface. And people who have been treated poorly are getting a voice. But I fear that most of what we see is a is a false assurance of inclusion. In fact, it's like a fake inclusion to the detriment of exclusion. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. To include someone into something means there actually has to be a boundary around that thing. Like a clear boundary. And what we, what we currently see is like we want to accept and include everyone by erasing the boundary. But you've heard me say this before, right? If you go into a store and everything's on sale, nothing's on sale. You get that, right? That's just what it costs. You, you don't get to say something is of value more or less based on just simply erasing all distinctions and all senses of value. And so this is hard, but Jesus, because he's patient with us, repeats himself. And this in and out of God's kingdom is a real thing and has real eternal implications. Just think about some of the teachings of Jesus, right? When he says there's an in and an out. There's what? There's sheep and there's goats. And there is a difference. 
an eternal difference that God sees. Right? There's wheat and weeds. There's the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. There's, there's, there's the virgins who were prepared for the coming of their groom and there's the ones that were unprepared, right? There's the, the stewards that, that were left and entrusted with something that, that invested wisely and the one that simply did nothing is called wicked and evil and cast out into the place of weeping and gnashing of, tape, of teeth. The ins and the outs of the kingdom are real. I know they hurt. I know that sense of exclusion is painful, especially if you've bought into and drank the Kool-Aid of a false sense of inclusion that we currently have. But it's a big deal. And Jesus says there are eternal consequences. And so I get to say with authority, certainly not an inherent authority, right? It's not mine. But I get to say with confidence, did you catch this? In Christ, your sins are forgiven. And there's eternal joy for that. But I get to say to the rest, maybe, of you, apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness. And you are piling up wrath from God. He is holding back the floodgates, and they will consume you forever. Now, again, don't be mad at me. I don't have any authority, right, to inherent in me to, to send you to heaven or hell. I don't, but, but it seems that apparently in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in verse 22, that is the authority that we've been given. It's a stewardship. Now, I say stewardship so that you won't go. Some of you got really excited, and you're like, yeah, I can't wait to tell the people, all the people that are not forgiven in Jesus, right? That, that's not helpful. You're nobody, right? You're nobody. And, and what, was Jesus, what was Jesus' first gift when he showed up to say this difficult thing? What was it? said it three times. Peace. Right, so he came as an emissary of peace and reconciliation and said, look, there's forgiveness in, in my name. There's forgiveness here. And we as the church, we as Christians, wield a real authority. When you declare the gospel and you extend that invitation of God's mercy, you are extending an eternal invitation. And in some mysterious way, God's grace, I don't know, God's eternal grace, he has entrusted to, <laughs> to you and to me. Jesus passes on the spoils of his victory. And what did he win? He won forgiveness. And what are the cabinet positions he's given to you and to me in his new kingdom? We're ministers of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of God's forgiveness. Go and wield it accordingly. Then Thomas shows up. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, shows up and they say, we've seen the Lord. And he says, unless I see the hands, in the hand his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The beautiful thing that happens in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples, and he says it again, they were inside again, presumably to call back to verse 19 why were they inside they were presumably still afraid still were wrestling with fear remember their peace wasn't the absence of fear peace is the presence of the hope of christ in the midst of fearful circumstances they're back inside he's throwing himself under the bus here to be fair he was with them so his disciples were inside again and thomas was with them this time and then he tells us also again the doors were locked here's the good news jesus goes wherever he wants it goes wherever he wants. Now, we don't know if he's like, 
in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Acts, we see, right, Peter set free and, and Paul and Silas, you know, like we see the people, miraculous things happen. They, they get out of prison and, a, and it says the angel opens a, a gate and lets, lets some prisoners free and locks it behind them. We don't know if Jesus, like, opened the gate, but, but we've seen other places, right, where Jesus was, they were trying to kill him and he just, they, he, whoop, they, how do he got away? And so whatever, whatever the case may be, whether there's like some angel working here or whether he actually has the power to like walk through walls, whatever the case may be, he said twice, John wants us to know, there was twice, I'm, 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 I swear to you, I locked the door, mom, I swear to you, and yet he, and yet he was there. Did you lock the door? Yes, I locked it. It's as if they got together eight days later and he's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. Somebody's got to lock the door this time. And still Jesus goes where he pleases. This is good news for us. This is good news for us. Jesus comes near to us because that's what he pleased, he's pleased to do. He comes to us by miraculous means, not against his will, not out of obligation, but because apparently he thinks it's fun twice in the same chapter, he gets a kick out of surprising people with his presence. And here's the fun thing. Many of you came this morning, and, and if you were honest with yourself, the last thing you expected coming to a worship service was to experience the presence of Jesus. And thank God I get to say, despite your poor and low expectations, Jesus shows up when and where he wants. And if you'll begin to consider this, you might be surprised by his presence even today goes where he pleases. So I want to kind of land on what we see happen with Thomas, though. Pretty profound. Thomas is like, I promise you, I'm not going to believe until I see this. And then, then he sees Jesus, and, and even though he says, I, I want to touch these things, and I won't believe otherwise, as soon as he sees Jesus, if you caught that, he didn't actually do that. John doesn't tell us that he actually touched the hands and, and the side of Jesus like he swore he would do. But instead, he says what? The greatest declaration in the Gospel of John, verse 28. My Lord... Not only my Lord, but hearkening back to the very beginning of the Gospel of John, when John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, that is the, the declaration of God's very mouth to His people, and that Word became flesh in Jesus. And that Word becoming flesh in Jesus was with God from the beginning. It's not an invention or creation or plan B of God. He is God. And what's the climax of the resurrection? Thomas the most skeptical of the, of the group, finally believes what John's been trying to tell us since chapter 1, verse 1. My Lord God! You're, you're God! You're here! There's an interesting nature of belief here. There's an interesting picture of what he currently had, or he had valued at the beginning, verse 24, and then what he valued at the end. And so I just want to land on this and invite you to consider how this might be true for you. I said this two weeks ago, but faith is impossible. And the resurrection exposes what you truly believe in. Remember Mary's story? She immediately, in, in face of the resurrection in the empty tomb, fell back on what she normally trusted in. And did you catch what it was? She said it multiple times, they. They took his body. They took his body. They took his body. As if to say, that's what they always do. Bad stuff always happens. And it happened again. And if you would just get his body for me, I'll go put it back. But they always do evil things. And she really believed that, that the enemies of Jesus were going to get the last word. 
such that she missed out on the resurrection of Jesus until, until Jesus appealed to her. But the same thing happened here. Did you catch it? The way we talk about this, I hope, is the way I kind of describe it is if you find yourself saying, I will trust Jesus if the thing you put on the other side of that if is the thing you genuinely trust in. It's the thing you worship. It's the thing that animates you and gives you life and identity. Did you catch what it was for, John, for Thomas? He says, if I can see it and touch it with my own hands, I'll believe it's real. I'll believe in Jesus if I can touch and see and feel it with my own hands. There's a couple things going on there that are really funny, right? The first one is just like the impetuousness of, and the childishness of this. One of the first things that a child begins to learn, you, some of you developmental, um, some of you developmental geniuses know this, right? Object permanence. That's why at the beginning of a child's life, peekaboo's fun because they literally think you've ceased to exist. And you're like, peekaboo, and they're like, whoa, you're back! But it's because they can't really comprehend. Like, if I don't see it, it must not be real. And so the first thing that he shows is an incredible, incredible immaturity. The inability to believe that something exists apart from his knowledge. But the second thing he shows, what I think most of us can agree with, is an incredible self-centeredness. If it's not real to me, then it must not be real at all. The only things that are true are the things that are true for me. And my truth is what's important. Do you hear it? It's nothing new. It's exactly what Thomas was like. Look, if, it, if it's not real to me, if I, don't get to if I don't get to test it and judge it, it can't be true. And what's he really saying? He's saying, I'm God. I am the arbiter of what is true and false. I am the judge of things right and wrong. I am the judge of all things real and not real. And if it's not real to me, then it doesn't exist. And you'll think that's absurd, but I would argue that's exactly, that's exactly the post-enlightenment Western mentality that we typically think of. We're all steeped in. You've got to do what's true for you, man. And don't miss, the resurrection of Jesus is an incredibly provocative encounter to the person who establishes and tries to assert their sovereignty over all things. So much so that he even throws it out the window. Did you guess that? He wanted to touch Jesus, but then when he had the opportunity, what did he see? He was like, apparently the way Jesus says, look, hey, as, as, if, to, as if to imply Jesus was present and he heard what he had said, and he said, look, I'm here. Want that thing you always wanted? Or do you just want me? And Thomas, in an incredible act of faith, apparently didn't go and touch for proof. He saw the sovereignty of Jesus and said, ah, you're the Lord. You're my God. But notice, faith in the risen Christ must involve risk. Now, it's a gift. It's something apart from ourselves, but that's for his glory. Ephesians 2 even says this, and we see the, lit, lit, I say embodiment, but that's just a terrible pun for this particular chapter. He's the embodiment of God's grace being given as a gift through faith. These people were staring, and it, everything that they saw in Jesus defied their comprehension. And so, so everything that they had trusted and really believed in was kind of being pulled out of their hands. And so Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you used to walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work 
and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were like the rest of mankind. But verse 4, greatest two words on earth, a conjunction but and the word God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Well, tell me about this grace and this faith. He says, this is not of your own doing. You can't actually do it. It's, as I say, it's impossible. It is a gift. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Don't miss it. There's a risk. There's a letting go of our sovereignty to experience faith. Now, I'm going to walk you through something that, that even philosophers in the last 20 years in the field of epistemology, that is pistis, the, way, the, the, the word faith, pistuo is the same word for believe. We have to use two different words in English, but it's the same word here, to believe and to have faith are the exact same word. So he's literally saying, you're not faithing, you need to faith. Faith more, right? There's, that's, that's, that's literally what's going on. It's the same word. And, and, and scholars in the field of epistemology will tell you that to have any sort of certainty, any real knowledge and any real confidence demands faith. You cannot know anything apart from faith. Now you can reason, as we saw earlier, and that will get you so far as probability. But faith, risk, vulnerability is how you get to certainty. I illustrated this a couple years ago when we, lived, when we were meeting. We lived. We did feel like we lived there. We were meeting in Rosa Parks Elementary School. And I used a chair, and some of you will remember this. But I, I just, just based on, like, pretty solid, well-built metal chair, right? And just based on the fact that you all seem to be sitting in one similar to that, I can reason and ration that that chair will hold me. I can, I can, take, all, I can take my weight off of my own feet, I can stop holding myself up, and I can put my weight into that chair. I can rationally and reasonably believe that's probable. Would you agree? But that's as far as reason and ration will get me. I can read every book about chairs. I could, I could meet the creator of that chair. I could, I could have watched him build it. I could understand. I could, I could know everything possible about chairs, how they're built, how they fail, um, the probability of this one holding me up. I could do all, I got all that knowledge, and that will only get me so far as probability. At a certain point, certainty, confidence, only comes through an act of faith and risk. I have to get in the chair and take my weight off of my feet. I have to let go of holding myself up, and it has to catch me. And now, here's something. I can tell you, as I'm sitting here right now looking at you, I am certain this chair can hold me up. Duh, right? Like this. <laughs> I'm certain. I am confident. Now, over here, it was probable, and, you, and it, you, some of you were praying that it would break, right? They're like this and that. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done with it, I, which proves a point. No, it doesn't. But there's a certainty that comes on the other side of faith and risk. And certainty only comes through faith and through vulnerability. You have to let go. You have to no longer hold on to power. Did you see what he was saying? He was saying, I'll believe you, Jesus, that you're risen from the dead if I can see it, if I can touch it. But it takes a risk. You have to let go. Now, here's the fun part. The risk of sitting in a chair and the certainty that we have from sitting in a chair 
is proportional to the certainty that we have in other things that we put ourselves in. Let me give you an example. Some of you will know what this is like. The confidence I have in a chair is different than the confidence I have in a parachute. True? So like if I sit in this chair and it does fail, oops, I fall two feet. If I put my faith in a parachute and it fails, that's the end. And don't miss what Jesus is saying. The only way to know me, the only way to have absolute certainty in an absolute being is to have absolute risk, absolute vulnerability, absolute faith. And some of you, I know you've come into this room and, and you've heard the claims of Jesus and, and you're rationalizing and you're reasoning your way towards faith in Jesus. And, and if you're like me, like, I don't know, I'm a perfectionist. I want to know all the answers before I even step out, right? That's why, I, I mean, this is a relational hazard, isn't it? Right? Some of you are like, well, I'll marry him when I know it won't go wrong. <laughs> Good luck with that, right? Right? If you're like, no, no, once, 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 there's no, once I know the risks are taken care of, then I'll, that's, you get it? You've reasoned and rationed yourself to probability, but the only way you can be certain is when you jump out into it. And faith in an absolute being requires an absolute risk. I would say even faith in an eternal being demands an eternal risk. Reason can get you to probability, but only faith and risk can get you to certainty. Maybe I'll put it this way. You cannot have control and faith at the same time. You can't. I mean, that's what Thomas said. I, I believe if. I'll trust as long as I'm Lord over the terms. And what did it keep him from doing? Seeing this beautiful thing once he sees the resurrected Lord in verse 28. My Lord and my God. Don't miss this. Some of you are rationalizing and reasoning your way toward faith. And it's simply a, a really pretty Christianese show so that you can really hold on to what's true and you can have sovereignty over your own life. The only way to know and to be certain is to jump out and be caught. I know what you'll say. You'll say, well, I don't have that kind of faith. You might even say, as I said earlier, it's impossible. I know. And you'll say, like, well, what do I do? I can't, have, I can't risk that much. I don't have it within me. I can't, I can't look into myself and have that much courage. How is it that I'm going to come up with this faith? And here, look what this chapter tells us. The risen Christ loves to meet people in their weak faith, or even their lack of faith, and strengthen them. And so if you're in this room, and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I can have that kind of faith, Jonathan. I don't know if I can jump out of that airplane into that parachute. I would encourage you. I know. Isn't it good news that the risen Christ loves, loves in this chapter to meet people with weak faith, to encounter them, grant them peace. You see, if it was in our own ability to believe and to perceive these things, then we would get the glory. But did you catch that in Ephesians 2? Only, only God gets the glory when, when it's a gift. And if you're here and you think your faith is super strong, well then here's what will happen. You won't be able to worship. I mean, you could sing some songs, but ultimately you're just congratulating yourself. Maybe if you're here, though, and you know your own weakness... And when I tell you the utmost risk that it takes to believe that Jesus is Lord over all things and all eternity, and, you're, and you find yourself going like, whoa, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. I have good news. Jesus is not surprised by this, and he loves to show up and grant this gift of faith. And for those of you that are here this morning and you know your own weakness, you know what you're going to be able to do that the rest of the people won't? Worship. 
you'll look to the Lord for answers and you'll look away from yourself. And you'll look away from your own sovereignty and you'll see the sovereign goodness of God's grace for us in Christ. I'll end on this. Ultimately, the risen Christ is a person to be encountered. And, and John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 uh, showed you the Grunewald painting here of the crucifixion. And, and Grunewald's most important point that he was trying to make is visible in, in some of the brightest, the starkest contrast. And some of the greatest contrast we see is the Mother Mary. We see the lamb at the bottom bleeding into a chalice. It's pretty dark. I, I, don't, I, I like 18th century Dutch paintings, but it's, it's weird, Right? But the other most like, disproportionate thing in the picture is John the Baptist on the right-hand side and his elongated finger. If you look closely at it, it's disproportionate. It doesn't fit the rest of his body. And it's as if to say that John the Baptist's only purpose was to point to Jesus. But I share with you in John chapter 1 what I said we would talk about in John chapter 20. Did you hear what he says? The whole purpose of this is what? In verse 31, I wrote this down so that you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and by believing you'd have life in his name. My greatest fear, my greatest fear is that I would stand up here and point at Jesus and you would simply look at my finger. My greatest fear is that you come together and we sing about Jesus and that's as far as you get. But I want to invite you into what's real because Jesus is alive. You don't get to simply talk to, or I mean, about Jesus. I'm inviting, you get to talk to him. You don't get to just sing about Jesus, but in a moment here when we respond by declaring the gospel in song, he's here and he'll hear you. My greatest fear is that I will stand up here every week and say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, and you'll only see me. But friend, did you catch it? If you're easily distracted and, <laughs> and prone to trust in other things, Jesus loves to encounter people in their weak faith and show himself to them. And this morning, if you're willing, to take a leap of faith, he will supply everything you need to see him and experience him as alive. And he won't be the man from the zombie movie to destroy you. He'll come in your midst. And do you catch what he would say three times? Peace. Let's pray. God, we love you so much for your care for us in Christ. We thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you, especially in John chapter 20, we get to remember that death does not get the last word. Suffering doesn't triumph. Uh, but instead, these are things that you simply use as like a canvas to paint a beautiful picture. You use them as a backdrop to demonstrate how kind and merciful that you are. If there's some in this room that have come this morning and, and maybe believing in Jesus sounds really far-fetched, would you even now encourage them? That's exactly what it's supposed to sound like. Might they hear the words of the of the Father in the Gospel of Mark. I believe, but help my unbelief. Might we begin to realize that, realizing that, might we might begin to understand that seeing our own lack of belief is actually the beginning of belief. Confessing our inability to really believe in the resurrected Savior is the beginning of believing Him and experiencing His presence, our very selves. Maybe for the rest of the people in the room, they've reasoned and rationed their way into a probability about Jesus' sovereignty. Would today be the day they throw themselves into His mercy and join the rest of us who get to declare in song, praise God, He caught me. Jesus caught me. May that be the cry of our hearts as we respond in faith. That faith is in Jesus' name. Amen.